Hello, my name is Noah Salsik. I'm a student project manager for the, for the event, the Call Out Project, Artist in Conversation. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Rani Pinoy, um, a writer, producer, and activist who is one half of Florida Musicals, the theater company will be speaking at our event. Rani, thank you and welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Um, oh, I said theater company. Is that correct? Is that all of the, the scope of Florida Musicals? Well, I'll say that Florida Musicals is really a... Um, uh, it's a way that Annalisa and I name our commitment to working on two particular musicals together. So I would say that it's um, more of a um, name for our writing practice and our commitment to each other as artists um, in ongoing conversation. Okay, I'm glad I asked. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Um, the first question I had was, I've, I've read your intro, I've worked on writing some for the, for the um, pieces that I have to write for this. You have a very accomplished background in theater, especially in D.C., and producing and writing. I would love to hear your journey, how you got to, um, from, from theater on the, in the district, you founded that, graduated Princeton, and now you're writing um, Theater's Guide to Presenting, or you've written it. Um, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. That's um, <laughs> very kind of you. Um, so after uh, college, um, graduated in uh, 07, you know, I thought to myself, okay, great, I'm going to be a director, uh, hopefully I can also um, write musicals, and uh, started in D.C. Uh, work, working an internship at the uh, Shakespeare Theater in D.C., which is quite an amazing place um, to land and quite the education, um, because the new theater, Sydney Harmon Hall, was opening, so it wasn't just a chance to uh, be part of a major professional theater, but also one that was going through change. Yeah. Um, so in that process, and then subsequently during a directing fellowship that I had at Arena Stage, I started to realize, um, also with the help of the amazing David Dower, who was at um, Arena Stage at the time, that uh, theater and the arts weren't as much of a meritocracy as I hoped. And that the stories that I was most um, excited by weren't necessarily the ones that were getting to the stage for a lot of reasons. <laughs> right. um, and, you know, it's also just a matter of what has been um, part of the zeitgeist up until now and who gets to tell the stories and the arts that are told and yeah. um, the way that uh, systems of um, generational wealth mean that the folks who have the ability to, like, have the time and resources and education to be able to write musicals may look a little you know, different or has looked different. Yeah. So uh, I was really intrigued by that, and that's kind of where my producing bug came from. I never kind of came into it from the standpoint of, um, uh, well, I really like spreadsheets, although I don't mind a good spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was very much about wanting to make sure that amazing artists who really should have their work out there were having that opportunity. So, you know, then, so then at Arena Stage, I... Um, did a producing fellowship, which then became a multi-year fellowship, um, and uh, hosted a convening on devised work where I learned a lot about what was going on in the field in what I would say like work that is not a well-made play, like sure. in the theater sense. Uh, and from there, got a great education touring with um, Anna Devere Smith as an ASM. What a wild ride. Uh, what a great education. <laughs> and, uh, you know, learned a lot about touring and the specific nuances of what it means for an artist to be on the road yeah. um, and the specific needs and sensitivities that come with that that you don't know unless you've kind of, you know, been that person who, uh, you know, is waking up on day 116, you know, <laughs> of the sure. show. Yeah. Um, so after all of that, I landed at um, Woolly Mammoth as producer-in-residence, um, which was a really great time. And 
that's where I, I did work with um, the producer's guide to presenting, um, looking at a smaller producing theater um, like Woolly Mammoth. And I mean, small, I mean more, I guess, mid-size in comparison to a lot of the theaters in this country to say, okay, you know, the, the theater is predominantly um, like a writer's theater and a, um, one that really uplifts new work and completely produces it from scratch. But there are also a lot of artists who are making awesome work uh, in the field that producing theaters could be thinking about presenting them as a way to offer some variety. And, and some of that has been happening, but that guide was really um, speaking specifically to um, smaller theaters who were predominantly producing, and this would be an exciting new thing. But all that is to say is that that was a really informative, a lot of education <laughs> in a small yeah. period of time. And uh, so it was that, at that point that I, I really was thinking, okay, I really I want to um, be additive as an independent producer. Uh, and, and also was interested then in continuing to think about my practice as a composer and um, where my other interests uh, lie. So um, in a very roundabout way, uh, it goes to show you that you never know um, <laughs> where you spend your time if it's going to end up being really meaningful to you is I, I took a job at the Consensus Building Institute in D.C., which is a facilitation and mediation company, mm. predominantly does environmental and land use uh, work. And and I thought, like, that's going to be a great, you know, um, a great thing to help me pay the bills sure. while I start my, my new business, Theater from the District, which was uh, hoping to support D.C.-based um, devised and ensemble work. Uh, because DC at that time had, you know, the Kennedy Center, it had um, uh, kind of emerging artist grants, but there wasn't really a, a ladder for where you could grow um, within the city of DC. Right. You really would have to travel to get recognition. So, uh, so I spent a lot of time in DC doing that. But, um, but all of that is to say that uh, with um, CBI, the Consensus Building Institute. Um, that actually ended up becoming a big part of my practice and how I work as a producer and activist in terms of consensus building and mediation. Um, and I ended up bringing theater into that organization as part of their practice. Yeah. So it's just, um, you know, all of that brings me to now. I'll fa fa fast forward mm -hmm. to finish answering this question, um, which is that I'm now in uh, Boston at uh, Arts Emerson, which is affiliated with Emerson College. Um, and we're um, a presenter of world theater. So in addition to curating work and the engagement process for that space, uh, actively committing to my composing practice and um, co-leading um, First Nations performing arts. Uh, so it's there's a lot going on. But um, what's, what's great is that I feel like now I've really landed in a place where I feel like all of the... Um, my priorities as a holistic person feel like they are moving forward, oh, which feels perfect. really good. Yeah. That's really great to hear. Yeah, long answer. <laughs> no, I loved it. Um, I suppose it was a rather long question. Can you tell me about everything? Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, my next question is, could you, you mentioned a little bit, but how did your partnership with Annalisa start? Where did you yeah. find that? So that's a fun story. Uh, we were both part of the Welders Playwrights Collective in D.C., uh, so that was modeled on 13P, which um, is a initiative that came out of New York where basically a group of artists uh, come together to support the producing of each other's work. Yeah. Um, and everybody gets a show, and then the group disbands. Uh, 
right. uh, which is a very cool model. Yeah. So I was part of that group um, uh, in D.C. with Annalisa, and very quickly we realized that not only did we have um, similar styles of uh, producing and communication, but we also had very similar values, especially in um, climate justice and very... Um, community-engaged work, and not even say it, that that basically the arts can be a, a major part of moving the needle on civic transformation, uh, as opposed to just um, talking about civic transformation. And there's like a subtle difference there. Yeah. So um, over time, we became good friends, and um, in 2017, so I should say that I initially started work on this project, the Carlisle Project, um, back, oh gosh, many years ago. I wrote a few songs for it. Um, and then the, you know, producing bug kind of, you know, <laughs> uh, took over and I really put yeah. a lot of my energy in that service kind of space. Uh, but then after my, my father passed uh, pretty suddenly in um, 2016, and my sense of, like, my relationship to being Laguna Pueblo and Cherokee and... Um, you know, I really had gone through a, a journey in the last uh, five years of my father's life and really digging in a lot more into what that meant. Yeah. And so it felt like after his passing that I needed to put new energy and commitment into um, completing this, not not just because I wanted to make an artistic work about it, but also because I felt like there needed to be some kind of work of healing in this space and it's also part of you know me honoring my father and my family so uh so when i realized that that's something i wanted to do in 2017 my first phone call was um annalisa to say because she's an incredible writer and gifted uh playwright um and just a passionate loving human being um exactly the person that you want to be on this kind of journey with Mm -hmm. uh and so thankfully she said yes (laughs) And so we've been both working on that and um, another musical in development, Hashtag Resist. Uh, very different. <laughs> very funny, very scathing. Um, and so uh, since then, we've been actively uh, working on these musicals together while we also hold other passions and commitments in other spaces as well. Well, I guess that, that brings me to why Carla? I mean, you've kind of spoken about that a little bit, but it's it's also not a one-off thing. You're, you said in your bio you're writing a musical about the Carlini Industrial School in a separate sense, I think. Um, and I want to know, like, this is the first school, but why was it you choose this school? Yeah. So um, I have a personal connection to it, um, which is that my uh, great-grandfather, Mark Pinoy, mm-hmm. uh, attended Carlisle. And um, he uh, then after... So he was um, born in uh, Laguna Pueblo. So he... Uh, you know, put on a train by his dad, came up here, and after uh, he graduated, moved to Oklahoma to work for the BIA, like many did, and um, there he met my great-grandmother, Eloise Reese, who was Cherokee, and who had spent time in the Cherokee um, seminary there, and um, from there, uh, you know, they had my grandfather and my dad, and, and basically everybody on my dad's side of the family has both attended and taught at uh, Indian boarding schools, and it started with um, my great grandfather at Carlisle. So for me, it's a—it's not just about. Uh, I mean, clearly a lot of this is personal, and that there's real um, intergenerational trauma in my family from that experience, and a lot of hard conversations I had with my dad about his experience with like his father and his grandfather. 
but also um, a real, there, there's also this deep commitment to education in my family, which I also imagine stems from that. So part of this is an excavation um, for me of that legacy, but also because Carlisle was the first, it, it the, um, the philosophy of it, the experiment of it, uh, it going to the source felt like the, the place to start. And so many of the different schools, um, I guess I should say that while this musical is focused on Carlisle, it, um, I hope it has resonances across other experiences. Yeah. But rather than taking kind of a survey approach, we really tried to dig into um, the real focus on, on Carlisle and the legacy of Carlisle today to living indigenous peoples. No, I understand that, yeah, absolutely. I, that actually brings me right to your inspiration for the Carlisle Project. Um, there's a selection of powerful songs, but I'm curious to hear who you looked for um, in terms of artists or, or art. Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of influences, but <laughs> sure. um, I, I'll say too that um, so the Carlisle Project. I, I laugh that it's um, not so much a Broadway musical as it is a something you might see. Um, at uh, BAM, like Brooklyn Academy of Music, sure. it's. Uh, I'm hoping that it's a. It's it's a bit of a ceremony of healing in disguise, uh, in that it's a song cycle. So yeah. a big inspiration for me, um, and it was actually part part of a lot of college work I did, um, was looking at uh, um, Schubert's Winterreise uh, song cycle, which was really. Um, meaningful to me as a as a young person and thinking about the way that music could tell a story uh, emotionally and in a non-narrative way. Uh, it's really a, a journey of the heart and of grief, and I hadn't really quite seen that before. And then um, Adam Gettle's Myths and Hymns was very uh, influential, and, um, you know, in college I had done some research about the, the similarities and structures and, and what the, those two song cycles set in relationship to each other, and I think a lot of that informs the way that I think about this song cycle, because so much um, the song cycle we think of as being a, um, a very European form, but it is cyclical, and uh, so much of um, indigenous everything from conversation, thinking, the way we think about things holistically, it a lot of it has to do with this circle and nonlinear. Um, structure, right? So um, I'm really interested in how that can, um, how this song cycle can offer different things to different people depending on where they come from is. Yeah, that is an interesting idea, yeah. And I never heard that it was a European concept, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's cool that you've, you've used it for your own purposes. Next, um, you've already kind of spoken to, to the erasure of the school and generational trauma, but I'd be curious to think about what you think can be done in the governmental sense um, I was doing some research, and there's, um, you know, Deb Harland has, has produced her report. There's a similar report in Canada. It was fairly perpetuated. Um, what can be done? Yeah. Uh, so I'm over the moon um, that um, Deb Harland is in the position that she is yeah. and that she's taking on this effort 100%. Yeah. Um, and I'm hopeful um, that this piece can be a part of um, the... Can I say this? Um, there's a lot of different actions and reckoning that we're going to have to do as a society mm -hmm. uh, for different purposes. So we need to both contend with the past and um, 
heal from it, both uh, emotionally and also in tangible, you know, ways of um, land back and uh, making sure that um, rematriation happens for the tribal nations that um, would like that to happen. Um, you know, there's 574 federally recognized tribes, so it's a yeah. there's distinctions there. But um, you know, as we reckon with the history. Um, I'm hope I'm hoping that Deb Holland's work in um, looking at what really happened in this country in the boarding school system in a much more rigorous way than we've ever seen um, happening, it, it's going to reveal a lot that I imagine will be quite painful. Right. And so my hope is that that this uh, work of art can be part of a larger effort towards um, healing because. Uh, you know, there's there's actually a wonderful artist who I've been falling in love with recently, um, Kiki Katese, who um, she uh, recently had a piece called The Book of Life with um, Rwandan Women's Cultural Center and um, Volcano Theater. And her piece, Book of Life, talks a lot about um, after the worst thing that happens, and in her case that worst was the Rwandan genocide, what do you carry forward? Because if you carry everything... Um, It'll it'll break you. It's it's not uh, it's going to continue to cause pain. So what do you choose to take forward, and what do you choose to leave behind? Mm. And and I've been really moved by that in thinking about for Carlisle, what are we choosing to keep, and what are the ways in which we are actively supporting living indigenous uh, people and tribal nations today, and using works like this to provide like a vision for indigenous futures. So it's not just about reckoning with the past, but about imagining a different kind of future. Absolutely. And the need for that balance makes a lot of sense, yeah. Um, well, I mean, that ties right into, I wonder how you see the Carlisle Project fitting into uh, the greater movement you describe of indigenous yeah. communities reclaiming these histories and, and healing, um, how they tie together. Yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, hopefully it does. <laughs> but there's so many different ways in, and... I know that there are many folks who are very excited and um, interested in supporting indigenous people, supporting tribal nations, but it can feel uh, really difficult to know where to start. Um, and thankfully, there's, uh, I think, more and more pathways becoming more visible to people about what those are. Um, I would uh, encourage anyone um, listening uh, to take a look at um, Emily Johnson, uh, her company Catalyst Dance. There is a decolonization rider that she has as an artist that she submits anytime she goes anywhere. And um, it is a really incredible document that really takes you through um, what are the things that indigenous people need to feel um, safe, to feel seen, and you know, those uh, those steps are critical. I think we often think about, okay, we need to give more opportunities, gigs, jobs um, to, um, to indigenous people. And well, of course, that is part of it. It's also about reframing um, uh, the way our society is set up. Um, and this is going to be the shortest uh, way of explaining a, a, a heady concept, but yeah, I'm going to do my, my best. But... Um, Settler colonialism is uh, not an event, but a ongoing um, practice and uh, world that we're living in. You know, it's the water we're swimming in. Mm -hmm. I think many people feel like, oh, that happened in the past. 
but we are still in a settler colonized society and until we reckon with that um, everything is going to feel a little bit like a band-aid so um, I'm always excited to talk to folks about um, land back about um, indigenous relationship to land and the stewardship that is going to be important for climate justice I mean it's holistic it's it's not a this terrible thing that happened in the past and let's it's not charity, right? right? It's about transforming our society so that it's a better and healthier society for everyone. Exactly. That's the goal. Yeah. Well said. Um, yeah, well, I think that, that brings me to one of my final questions, which is, I, you already spoke about kind of the, the trauma in your own life, uh, or at least in your own family, um, but I, I'm curious, the Carlo Project, or Carlo School, I should say, banned indigenous language. I wonder how that in particular has, has caused um, an issue because I just think that that is one of the most um, gut-wrenching things to read. Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. Um, it certainly <clears throat> has affected me personally in that, um, you know, when I was first growing up, my dad would say to me, well, you know, if you, because I can pass and I'm, I'm very open about talking about the fact that, you know, on my mother's side, I'm Polish and, mm-hmm. um, so I can pass as a white, as a white person, sure. um, but I'm mixed race, and so it's a it's a choice to um, can I say this to embrace and to be responsible to and accountable to my to my indigenous ancestors ancestors in my family, uh, and growing up in Pittsburgh, uh, you know my dad was just very much like if you don't have to deal with it, um, I. I want to love you and protect you to not have to deal with the pain that I went through. Right. And so I'm, you know, three generations away from language. Right. And while my father is enrolled in two tribal nations, I'm still in the process of getting enrolled because he didn't set that up for me for all the reasons that, you know, um, we talked about. And uh, it's it's a process that I feel like many young indigenous and mixed race folks are going through to kind of say, okay, um, there's a culture building that's happening from what was taken away. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm really moved by folks like um, uh, Siobhan Brown um, from Mashpee Wampanoag Nation, who is part of a stunning um, uh, educational school program for young people that is teaching the Wampanoag language that had been uh, dead for a hundred years, and they, through you know, through research and um, a lot of incredible work, are completely reviving that language yeah. and are speaking it in conversation. And any meeting I'm in with her, I hear some, right. and it's a it's a political and it's a embodied act because I, I think we know language is deeply um, tethered to culture. So by um, by stripping someone of language, you are stripping them of uh, so much more than even that. Yeah. Uh, so um, I'm really hopeful that I can rebuild um, my own, um, you know, pathways in language, whether it's Cherokee or Karis. But uh, um, that's uh, just something that is one of, I think, the most stark aspects of the Carlisle experience um, was the taking away language. Yeah. No, it's not that way. So I wanted to hear your perspective on it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, my, my next question is, what's next for you? What are you looking forward to, and what are you excited about? What's, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, oh, man, so much. <laughs> well, 
Well, the one thing I'll say is that the one of the joys of the past five years has been building um, my community, and like specifically in the indigenous space. I mean, there's been, uh, and, and it's not just the community of indigenous artists, but working to reconnect with um, with Cherokee kin, with um, uh, going out to Laguna, um, and you know, connecting with an elder there to. to to you know, start those baby steps of um, reconnecting with land and with people because that's that's what it's all about. So that's been um, an amazing foundation and basis. Um, but for I'm very excited that for this project um, we have a uh, reading of the full musical happening on May 10th at uh, Pittsburgh Public Theater, and um, hopefully after that we'll have a full you know premiere production somewhere and. I do very much hope that there's an opportunity to bring it back to Carlisle because that feels um, critical <laughs> yeah. given given this particular story that we're telling. So very excited about that. Um, and for, um, yeah, I think that's the big thing that is just looming very large in front of me. And then once May 10th passes, I can think about what's next. Yeah, I'm sure. I hope you can bring it back to Carlisle. That would be so cool, yeah. especially since I live here. That would yeah. Be cool. <laughs> I can actually come. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that brings us to the end of this interview. I, I always say, is there anything else you'd like to talk about that you didn't get to mention or upset? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, oh gosh, there's there's so much that I care about. No. <laughs> what, what I'll say is that um, uh, just for, just to uplift it, because I feel like it's often not uplifted, is the intersection between everything we're talking about today in terms of art practice and um, indigenous uh, rights and sovereignty with climate justice. I, I feel like um, in this moment, racial justice and climate justice and indigenous rights and econo economic justice and accessibility all get kind of siloed. Yeah. And really they're all part of building the more just world we want to see. So as the more we actually see them as um, intersecting, I think the um, the more successful we're going to be. Um, I'm pretty sure, and I will verify this, that the latest statistic is that 80% um, of the world's uh, biodiversity, like successful biodiversifiers that are still mm -hmm. healthy, are in, uh, under indigenous stewardship. Right. Which is it. It tells you know that it just says something, and you know, for anyone who's read Robin Kimmerer, um, will get excited about this. Mm -hmm. That. Science is rigorous and wonderful and important, and indigenous ways of knowing and being are um, are a different way of knowing that is not less than you know. And clearly, given the stewardship of lands over many, many, many years, there's uh, there's learning there, and I'm really excited about the intersections between um, uh, science and governments and indigenous peoples to really value that knowledge in a, in a different kind of way. And that's been happening in the climate justice space and, and is just so exciting. And um, as we think about um, one of my favorite words, like restoring, um, not restoring, restoring no, our past to rewrite the kind of dominant narrative of what America has been, uh, I think that's going to be really helpful to imagining you know, to imagining something different. And it's not just going to have impact on indigenous peoples, but for all of us, for the planet. Um, and I'll leave it there. All right. Thank you so much. All Thank right. you. That was lovely. That was great. <laughs>